I'm going to begin by reflecting on a really, really deep subject, something that has been fundamental in how humans have come to see and form themselves through time. Mirrors. Mirrors. Specifically, I'm going to share with you a little bit of the history of mirrors, focusing especially on how St. Clara of Assisi understood the functioning of mirrors, which should at least assure you that I will eventually get around to talking about God. We expect our mirrors to hold the same clarity at the furthest edge that they hold at dead center. But Claire lived and wrote and looked into mirrors in the 13th century, long before mirrors became a standard accessory, sleek, shiny, and professionally mounted on our bathroom walls. The earliest mirrors we know of were quiet lakes and clear ponds, surfaces that of course might be disturbed by the smallest wind, distorting the face that looked back at you, making it dance and swim in ways that could be absolutely dizzying. So in time, people figured out that they could put that water into bowls, and that small pool would also allow one to see her face with less chance of the wind's disturbance. So discoveries being what they are, and skipping ahead by a long way, um, one idea led to another, and by the 13th century, a mirror was made of dome-shaped bronze, smooth-hammered and shiny, <coughs> portable, I suppose, but still with all the clarity of a funhouse mirror. So imagine this. This will give you an idea. Imagine trying to decide whether your hair is in a presentable state by looking into the back of a silver spoon. Or even worse, try looking into the bowl of the spoon where you'll appear upside down and have no idea if your hair really looks like that or if it's hanging up because it's hanging down. Whatever. Um, either way, everything you see is going to be reflected with some unfortunate hybrid of reality and distortion. What gets exaggerated and what gets compressed will depend on how you locate your face on the curve of that spoon. But there is no way a spoon will ever give you an accurate image of how you look. So this sort of curved and wobbly space is where Claire came to experience and give meaning to the image of her own face. From the almost unavoidable distortion, maybe I should have said from the unavoidable distortion, there's no almost about it, um, Claire found and expressed her understanding of what it means to be Christ's own. I'm going to say Claire must have been brilliant and possessed of an amazing imagination to get from a wobbly mirror to where she got, but here we go. So here's what she observed in that mirror. If you look along the edge of the mirror, you will see a very, very distorted view of yourself. As you move upward from that edge, approaching the highest point in the center, you continue to see yourself in more and less distorted ways. The changes 
may be somewhat determined by the skill of the craftsman, but there is no way possible to make a curved mirror that shows an accurate image, except at the very highest point of that curve, which Claire considered also the deepest point, there is a small spot where the distortions essentially disappeared. So given good eyesight and the right light, you could see your almost true image even in that rather primitive mirror. From this experience of how she had to look to see herself, Claire drew a rather profound understanding of life as God presents it to us. The mirror, she said, is God's way of revealing the truth of life. By looking into the, the perimeter of the mirror, up to a line just short of the center, we see life as we can imagine it having been lived by Jesus of Nazareth. That's amazing enough to be sure that God became human and lived in a place like Nazareth. But that curvy area still doesn't give us a picture of the full depth of God's love for us. If we want to see that, we have to go to that highest and deepest point, dead center in the curve. And then we'll see what God was willing to suffer for the sake of love. There, Claire saw not only her truest self as God saw her, but also Christ's death, which she saw as the result of that long-lived con <clears throat> conflict between God's truest love and our own deepest fears. Claire saw herself in that point, fully covered and recolored by Jesus Christ as he was in human flesh as his love and his death reshaped all of life for all time. If you were listening to, the, um, to our colic this morning, you may have noticed that the theme for our morning's readings is love. Every reading we had reminds us again and again of what the near magical power of love really is to change what is true. In our reading from Genesis, we see that kind of love alive and active in Joseph. This is the same Joseph who, many years before, had been sold into slavery by his brothers because of their envy and hatred of him. Their belief that their father Jacob had too much love for this youngest son and that somehow left too little love for the other 11 brothers. But in their need for food and safety, these other brothers have come to Egypt. There was a widespread famine, and they had heard that the wisdom of Egypt's second most powerful figure had preserved abundant stores of food, and he was willing to share. They had come thinking they were going to beg the mercy of a stranger. And instead, they encountered the brother they had long assumed to be destroyed 
or even dead after years of slavery. Imagine how frightening it must have been for them when they discovered that the brother whom they had so mistreated now has the power of life and death over them. But instead, Joseph loves them with a love that can only come from God working within. Bring my father to me. I will, I will grant plenty to stave off your hunger and shelter for all of you, Joseph says. Instead of revenge that he had the power to take, Joseph offers forgiveness, reconciliation, and indeed new life. Joseph clarifies that this gift he offers is way bigger than himself way bit bigger than the brother's horrid behavior so many years before. This is, from beginning to end, God's way of saving and loving God's people. You will possess... Sorry, just got ahead of myself. Question. How deep in us must God reside in order that we might hold and offer this kind of love? to another, any other. The psalmist, too, directs us toward God's love. Put your trust in God and do good. Be still, wait patiently, refrain from anger, do not fret. You will possess the land, you will delight in the abundance of peace. Sounds lovely, right? Is it easy? Of course not. The psalmist, like us, lived in a time when the finer details of right and wrong, of what is help and what is hindrance, of what is and is not love, can easily evade us, leave us at odds with those who think and experience the world in ways that do not align with our own experiences. Of course, some things in the world are clearly evil for example, and theft. But what happens when we talk about war? That involves killing. What happens when a woman steals bread to feed her starving children? That's love, and that's life-giving. And as you may be anticipating already, what does Jesus tell us to do when someone steals our coats? How does love fit into the psalmist's conversation? How does God speak to us of love in the midst of, and sometimes even through, everyday life that can feel like walking on soggy ground, or like being adrift in an atmosphere of noisy questions that leave no bandwidth for soft-spoken answers? At times, I think I'd rather escape such questions run out the back door and plant lettuce or beans, because at least we can eat those. But even when I am in compost up to my elbows, and I do get that way, one unavoidably big question persists. How deeply inside myself must I search to find what truth God would speak about love as an answer to the complexities of life outside my gardens? Following that, of course, 
we have Paul with his dizzying analysis of seeds and spiritual bodies. I'm going to leave the matter of seeds aside. I do know that if I plant lettuce, lettuce will emerge, along with some weeds probably. Um, but what on earth or in heaven is a spiritual body? I think we can leave aside any notion of ghosts or vapors or people fluffing around on clouds. The resurrected Jesus, the one example of a resurrected body we actually have, broke bread and ate fish. And he continued his ministry on this earth. Paul reminds us in this text that we are promised such a resurrection life and one of honor and power, a life in which we live day after day in the life and pathways of the resurrected Jesus. So where does that need to happen? Probably not in a life existing on clouds, but right here and right now, on this earth, in this world so desperately in need of people who are infused with the love of God as Jesus exemplified it. This is a world where we need an example of the living, breathing love of the risen Christ, something that is born in us, embedded in us, and just sits there waiting to be found and claimed and used by us. So I ask, how much courage does it take for me to seek so deeply inside myself that I might actually be a player in God's desire for the world's salvation? And finally, we come to Jesus, the good, loving arbiter of justice, who here is as who annoyingly challenging as anyone can be. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. If someone hits you, turn a bit and let him hit you again. If someone steals your coat, chase after him and ask if he needs a new shirt as well. Jesus, I think, is asking us to do something a little bit contrary to human nature, something that many days I don't feel I have the power to do. But I dare say most of us in this room wake up most mornings knowing at least something of who God is, how Jesus lived God into the world, and how we are called to live the hope we are given into the world's reality. Doesn't mean it's automatic or easy, we know it's not. But big, generous, cumbersome love is pretty much a basic tenet of our faith. Love will always be bigger than our capacity to live it into the world. But we're called to live love in such a way that it overflows our meager capacity and somehow carries God into a world that so desperately needs a God whose love is this big and this all-encompassing. The most wonderful thing about love, I think, is its power to transform what is lost or broken into something that lives in the very heart of us, healthy and whole and life-giving. An enemy is not an enemy 
if you love him. The coat thief is not a thief if you run after her and offer her one shirt more than she ever thought of stealing. Love, this love Jesus talks about, has a way of drawing in which was once stuck outside. Even the relatively small portion of love we can offer makes a difference. And I have to ask here, how high must I cast my eyes and my hope if I am to be a part of this transformation? These days, we look into our smooth mirrors, imagining ourselves and the world around us as things really are. But look again. Have you ever noticed that those things you think are behind you, perhaps the painting on the opposite wall or the laundry your three-year-old just unfolded in the middle of your bed, lies most deeply in the mirror, an almost infinite distance in front of your actual physical self. What is sitting right there in front of you on the bathroom counter probably won't show up in the mirror at all. If we could remove the walls and maybe the curve of the earth, we might see infinitely into what lies behind us. And I think that's a risk we take, isn't it, in everyday life? It's so much easier to see what lies behind us than it is to see the possibilities in front of us. What dominates the shape of life is too often our past, things that we cannot change. Individually and collectively, we are formed by what has already happened. How well we paid attention in school or didn't, how much joy we found in hours of play and imagination and freedom or how much anxiety those hours brought us, how well we have been loved through life, or how sadly we have not been so loved. It's unfortunate, maybe, that our mirrors no longer come with that deficit of clarity that forces us to seek the tiny center point where Claire's visionary self was able to see reality as it most truly and wonderfully is. Deep, deep, and even deeper inside us, in that place where Christ recolors our view with a certain and wonderful hope. When we live in a world that presents us with betrayals, as Joseph experienced, where we see evil at work yet are called away from anger and fear, when we see injustice winning at life and yet are promised that the humble will possess the land, where we are called to rise in honor and power and yet find ourselves still living in our less than perfect bodies, when we are called to reward and transform a coat thief with the gift of a free shirt. I think a life in a world such as that demands to be lived with hope. As people so loved by God, we should expect and welcome such hope. Hope is not a hollow or a silly thing. The hope of what could be, what is true of life as it falls to us from God's hand, 
what might be true if we had the insight and the courage to live into it is as much truth as that past we have already experienced. If we are able to find God, and we are, we are also able to find hope. And we are able to find the highest, deepest love somewhere in the tiniest center of the most distorted mirror. The tiny point which happens to be equally as vast and spacious as God's own self and as God's overflowing love for us. 